Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're listening to Unsavory, where true crime meets food. Hi, everyone. I'm Becca. And I'm Sarah, and you're listening to Unsavory. Today, we are back with part two of our Herbalife episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, This nutrition MLM is so scandalous that it is taking us two episodes to cover. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly suggest doing that first. But with that, Sarah, what were your key takeaways from the first part of the series? Well, first of all, this probably even could have been a (laughs) three-parter. There was Mm -hmm. so much... I mean, I'm thankful that this wasn't my topic because I know you've just been like (laughs) going down wormhole after wormhole after wormhole. So from the first episode, to recap just a little bit, the founder launched Herbalife after his mother's tragic death from diet pills, which is like the saddest irony. And then there's a lot of the classic kind of MLM behavior, encouraging distributors to bring in friends and family members under the promise that they'll make lots of money and have this amazing side hustle and all this freedom and time. But there's often little to no payout. And I think we ended off our first episode with the FDA banning the use of ephedra in their products because 
it was linked to a number of deaths. Yes, exactly. And if you can believe it, this part is equally, if not more scandalous. Today, we're going to talk about how Herbalife has targeted lower-income immigrant communities by using manipulative American dream-like marketing propaganda, as well as how one business tycoon bet $1 billion that the company would fail and then tried to make that happen using some less-than-savory tactics. Also, how Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, got involved in all of this drama. (laughs) Part one completely knocked my socks off, so I'm very excited to hear the rest of this scandalous story. And how the heck does Kamala Harris get involved? I'm so curious. (laughs) You'll see. Let's do it. (laughs) The information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a physician or registered dietitian in your area. If you have a history of disordered eating, be advised that nutrition details will be discussed and take the steps you need to protect your recovery journey. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes on our website, unsavorypodcast.com. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through the Patreon link in our bio. If you could rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, so some of my sources for this episode include articles written by Matthew Heller in the LA Times, Philip Roth in The Breeze, and the Betting on Zero documentary. And as always, you can find all of the sources used in this episode in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. So as you'll remember, Herbalife was thriving in the 80s and 90s despite selling controversial weight loss promises and facing multiple lawsuits. However, Herbalife took a hit when its founder, Mark Hughes, was found dead of an accidental overdose, tragically similar to his mother's. Immediately following his death, the Herbalife stock fell almost 50%. But at this point, they have some of like the best PR firms and lawyers on their side, and they start hiring athletes to help promote the products. Again, kind of like pushing this false narrative of a healthy lifestyle in using the Herbalife products. Okay, I'm just a little confused about why the Herbalife stock fell so drastically. Like, was it because of the founder's death? So from my understanding, the company's stock had started to plummet a bit before Hughes' death. Apparently, he was selling some stock options for discounted rates to people on the inside. And and some of the current investors 
were pissed off. Mm. But then after he passed, the company lost some of their credibility since their cheerleader who promoted this like seemingly healthy lifestyle died because of an addiction that he had. And that's something that doesn't really fall in line with that perceived lifestyle. Mm. That makes a little more sense. Kind of reminds me actually of the Atkins situation where after Dr. Robert Atkins passed away, his like the Atkins brand kind of suffered because it was this like brand that was all about health and living your best life. And then to pass away from a seemingly health-related event didn't reflect too well on the company. No, it's very similar. So Herbalife then brings in Michael Johnson as the new CEO. And Johnson is another super charismatic guy. He's athletic, driven, and determined to reinvent Herbalife's image. He was also the former Disney International president, so he's like already this big wig. And just a quick side note, in 2011, when Johnson was with Herbalife, he was the highest paid CEO in America, and his compensation package was over $89 million. Oh my God. That's outrageous. <laughs> I know. So during those next few years, they really work on Herbalife's image and credibility in the health and wellness industry. They bring this Dr. Louis Ignaro onto their nutrition advisory board. And this doctor has a very impressive resume. He has specializations in pharmacology and is a Nobel Prize winner in uh, physiology or medicine. Hmm. Ooh, that's fancy. <laughs> so fancy. Yeah, he became a Nobel laureate in 1998 for his discovery of the range of benefits of nitric oxide on the human body. But what's hilarious is that on the Herbalife Advisory Board website, there's an asterisk next to the description of his prize with a footnote that reads, the Nobel Foundation has no affiliation with Herbalife and does not review, approve, or endorse Herbalife products. <laughs> Which made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, you know that they so badly wish they could revoke that prize. Oh, definitely. <laughs> but I also wondered too, like, I feel like researchers in general are considered a bit quacky when they first start testing and investing in new scientific discoveries. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure even Einstein seemed a bit weird before he was considered a genius. It's a fine but critical line. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. But I think the biggest difference is that a true professional wouldn't promote something until a true link or causal relationship has been established and it's known to be safe. Yes, yes. No, for sure. Good point. Including weight loss and health products. So it's kind of crossing that line a little bit here. Mm -hmm. Since joining the Herbalife team, Ignaro has helped them create products that help boost the body's production of nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. So it helps relax our body's blood vessels, which increases the flow of our blood and decreases blood pressure. So it has some pretty important benefits. You know, they could have just drank some beet juice. <laughs> yeah, actually, I saw some nitric oxide promoting products with beetroot when I was doing my my research, but I couldn't find any Herbalife products with it in it. But that's a great suggestion. <laughs> so it's reported that Ignaro has made millions of dollars from the company. The Betting on Zero documentary said that the figure was somewhere around $22 million. I must say, though, I was looking at the Nutrition Advisory Board the other day, and they do have a number of like MDs, dietitians, and healthcare PhDs on their roster. And I was pretty impressed. I mean, companies can change and adapt. And if there's enough like public pressure or backlash, you know, maybe they're different now. I'll put my judgment on pause 
for the moment. All right. Well, take your finger off pause. (laughs) Okay. So then in 2013, they brought in Dr. Richard Carmona as the, he's just another board, board member. He was the 17th Surgeon General of the U.S. And he has an interesting background and it's one to make note of. He was born in New York to a Hispanic family who apparently struggled with finances, homelessness, and some health issues. He became a veteran in Vietnam who later went on to get his bachelor's and medical degrees. And I'm not regurgitating his resume because he's not qualified to be a board member because clearly he is, and he may even be overqualified. But this rags-to-riches story about this super successful Latino man really mirrored what Herbalife was marketing at the time. And what they began doing or were accused of doing is targeting Hispanic populations by promising improved quality of life using that American dream-like propaganda. And they had the perfect spokesperson to really boost their credibility. Mm-hmm. Now, if we were to cover all of the issues that Herbalife has initiated with their global marketing tactics, we would be here all friggin' day. So today, we're just going to focus on a few instances in the U.S. because that's where a lot of the information is. So it has been reported that 80% of Herbalife sales can be attributed to their success in Hispanic communities. While the initial push to grow a health business within these communities seems wonderful, there has been a lot of criticism about Herbalife's deceptive recruiting tactics here, mainly speculation that they have targeted lower-income families with promises of independent income, increased quality of life, and helping others achieve their health goals. And of course, as we know, these are empty or fairly empty promises since less than 4% of all Herbalife distributors make more than $300 in net income. And this was discussed in part one of the episode if you are just tuning in. Herbalife had already had business success in Hispanic communities globally. Then in 2004, a distributor couple in Mexico launched this new recruitment initiative in having these discreet invite-only gatherings to socialize about nutrition and fitness and to try the Herbalife products. And that's basically how the Herbalife Nutrition Clubs were born. A story for you. One of my friends listened to episode one and messaged me and said that she went to what sounds like an Herbalife Nutrition Club. Like she went, she did a fitness class. She like tasted the products. She said they were really drinking the Kool-Aid. Those were her words. (laughs) (laughs) Is that in Canada or Mm -hmm. the States? Canada. Interesting. I know. Okay, because I know that there is a Canadian presence with Herbalife, but I personally haven't really seen any of that. Okay, yeah. She lived in California for a while. So maybe it was back then because I didn't ask when specifically it was. Yeah. Well, it very well could have been here too. It's just that you can't really look up where these nutrition clubs are to join one. Like, they're super secretive. Word of mouth only. Yeah. (laughs) Just to be clear, these Herbalife nutrition clubs were like stores with the products or like, what were they? Yeah, exactly. But what they really became was more of like this front for distributors to recruit other distributors. So I wouldn't be surprised if your friend had some like recruiting initiatives put on her. (laughs) Only Herbalife storefronts were not allowed. So they made them more like pop-up shops. So you couldn't have like a permanent store. But some of these pop-up shops would kind of like become more permanent. 
And they had a very strict set of rules that must be followed, including that you were not allowed to use the Herbalife name, logo, or the words Nutrition Club, and Mm. that you could not advertise or promote the club. But the clubs were also not open to the general public, which is all very suspicious. (laughs) Uh, So I feel like you kind of have to break at least one of these rules to get anyone to come to these clubs. Definitely. It sounds like Fight Club. (laughs) Like the first rule about Herbalife Nutrition Club is that you don't talk about Herbalife Nutrition Club. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, so these clubs have been noted to have been like super successful because they offer more of that like camaraderie or social support, something that the previous Herbalife experience didn't really allow for. It was about $5,000 to $6,000 to start one of these clubs, and they would charge visitors about $5 a day, often serving Herbalife shakes, aloe water, and teas. And like, I I really now want to know kind of what your friend's experience was like. Was it similar to this? Was she charged a cover fee? And was she served all of the different variety of things? Or was she allowed to like choose one thing? I just find it so interesting. I'm going to ask. I'll investigate. Maybe we can post something on the Instagram about it. Amazing. That sounds great. So there was some research done using these expense and entrance income estimates, as well as estimates of foot traffic and additional purchases of products made at the nutrition clubs. And it's estimated that many of these clubs would lose about $12,000 annually (gasps) unless the clubs were being used as a networking opportunity to create distributor downlines. So most of the nutrition club members were therefore fellow distributors or becoming distributors, uh, meaning that a lot of the money made was within the distributor community, basically kind of creating this like money transfer scheme, if you will, Mm. except that it wasn't really being transferred that far. No being transferred to your friends and the people you invite, I guess. Mm -hmm. Basically, these clubs sound like they're a money pit unless you can use them to recruit more Herbalife distributors. And if you invest in these clubs, then you're kind of in this position where you have to recruit more people if you want any chance of making your money back. Yeah. Not good. Bang on. There are a few really upsetting stories shared in the documentary that I watched. One shared by Julio Ulua, who previously owned a construction company, which he gave up to invest in an Herbalife Nutrition Club. He bought thousands of dollars worth of products with the promise that he would make it back quickly, as well as have the opportunity to help improve the health of his community. And the individual who was making these promises was a good friend of his. So not the current CEO, Michael Johnson, or some like rich Herbalife distributor, but a friend who had Julio in his downline. So when Julio started feeling like a bit deceptive about his own Herbalife business practices, which he was encouraged to use, he ended up pulling out of the company. But he lost his savings, he lost his home, and apparently Mm. even like his family stopped talking to him. He had no other choice but to move into a cramped three-bedroom apartment with two other former Herbalife distributors. And like, is it a coincidence that there were other Herbalife distributors looking to downsize? Looking for roommates? Definitely not. I kind of doubt it. (laughs) No. Yeah. Now, we can't really blame Julio's friend here either, obviously, because he was also like being manipulated by these same recruiting tactics. But the worst part about this whole scheme is that they encourage distributors to recruit their friends and family members. So 
if and when their Herbalife business fails, ex-distributors also often lose like friendships or relationships along with their savings. And that's like a perfect example of why people get so trapped in these MLM schemes or MLM style businesses because it's not just a job. It's like encompassing all these different areas of their lives, their friends, their family, Mm -hmm. their savings, their investments, their homes. It's wild. There's even this like phenomenon. It's called the, the pop and drop, which is actually it's being used to describe this pyramid scheme structure. And Basically, it describes like the immediate popularity of these businesses and new communities where it kind of like does become all-consuming. So it's that like pop. And then how this popularity dies off with a drop once distributors realize that they're being just like full-on scammed. So it's really sad. Hmm. Anyways, this community advocate named Julie Contreras, who is from a city in Illinois that I cannot pronounce... She first heard about the scandal within Herbalife from a friend who had actually invested in the company. She claimed that this friend's house was just like full of Herbalife products. They were in every single room, in every corner, but he kept purchasing the inventory because he was being fed the same empty promises that everyone else was falling for. Mm. And we talked about this in part one, but victims of pyramid schemes are often hesitant to come forward due to the fact that they may may not even realize that they were being scammed in the first place, and they may take the loss on as their own personal failure. And even if they do acknowledge that they were scammed, they may hesitate to come forward due to embarrassment. But Contreras had this hunch that there were others who had been victimized by the company, and so she encouraged her friend to speak out, and together they held a press conference to see if they could find more victims. And they did, many of whom were undocumented immigrants. Ugh, that's awful. And I'm like 0% surprised. But it's just so terrible that, you know, the most vulnerable and the least likely to come forward and report something to the authorities are those that would be undocumented. And they would also be extra, you know, feel the urgency and maybe desperation to find a career that offers the ability to help them generate some independent income. So I can see how they would be drawn to, like, undocumented immigrants would be drawn to an opportunity like this, but it just makes me dislike Herbalife even more. Yeah. No, it's it's really freaking sad. But yeah, in the the documentary, they talk about this quite a bit, but in, like, a small fraction of the business, like, you have all of these, like, super rich distributors, and by all, Mm -hmm. I mean, like, very few, and they kind of, like, fly around showing off their their wealth to other people in other people's downlines and just kind of like promise them that they can achieve these things. And then they also have what was referred to as the no-fly distributors who can't leave, who can't fly around. Can't afford to fly. Who can't afford to fly. That's problematic. (laughs) So problematic. And it's just like, it's just like devastating that there was even like a term for distributors like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, like it it was so common that they actually had like a little nickname for it. Yeah. I don't think that it was necessarily publicized that they used that, but it was brought up like in an interview with one of the Herbalife staff members or distributors in that documentary, which was kind of just sad and shocking. So together, like the group of individuals who are realizing that they've all been scammed together now, they hire a lawyer named Douglas Brooks. 
And I think he does the the work pro bono. So I don't know if they hire him or if he just like offers to take on the work, which is amazing. This guy seems incredible. But they put together a case and they launch a class action lawsuit against the company. And I should mention that Julio Ulua, who lost his construction company, he joined in on this as well. And this group, they got so many plaintiffs together. It's really, really quite impressive. Like, I mean, it's so sad that there's so many plaintiffs, but it's impressive that they were able to find so many. And so this was in 2015 that the class action lawsuit kind of took off. And in total, 1.55 million Herbalife distributors became members in this lawsuit. Oh my gosh. That is so many people. Isn't that wild? Wow. Half of Toronto. (laughs) Crazy. So within this group, the average financial loss with the company was $8,000. So if we do some fast math, and I did this math very quickly, so like (laughs) maybe I'm wrong. I actually did it a few times because I was like, this can't be right. But that would be over $12 billion in damages. Oh my god! But then I was also like trying to like put things in perspective because I was like, that is an insane amount of money. But then Herbalife also made $5.5 billion in revenue in 2020. So really, that's about two years worth of revenue for them. So it doesn't sound so bad when you frame it that way, but $12 billion. Right. So Herbalife tried to settle this lawsuit by offering the plaintiffs $15 million, which, again, seems like a lot of money to you or I, but... Mm -hmm if distributed amongst the group, would mean that each victim would receive about a $10 settlement. Oh my God. That's so, that's so small. It's nothing. It's It's hilarious. It's like hilarious. Yeah, but it's terrible. (laughs) So they rejected the settlement and brought the case to the federal district judge. And then this judge just rejected it. So she apparently wasn't really moved by any of the stories or Mm. arguments. And she just kind of tossed it. But like, I'm sorry, if there's 1.55 million people saying that they felt victimized asking you to look into their case, there's no way that you just toss that aside. So I'm just like very skeptical of this decision and like whose hands were in whose pockets Totally. in a lot of these instances. Like this is all speculation. (laughs) Yeah, 1.55 million people have a story and a similar story that all like corroborate each other's stories. Mm-hmm. How could you toss that aside? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. But we will come back to this lawsuit again in a little bit. But we're just going to hit pause here. <laughs> now, there is a massive part of this story that we haven't even touched on yet. And this might be one of the more unusual parts. And it's so, so interesting. So now we have a new player in the game, Mr. Bill Ackman. And he hasn't really been involved in this story up until this point, even though some of what I'm about to describe kind of like takes place prior to the class action lawsuit, but that doesn't really matter for the sake of the story. So Bill Ackman is this Wall Street type. He's an investor, a hedge fund manager, and what's called an activist investor, which is someone who buys stake in companies in order to influence how they run. Hmm, okay, That sounds a bit manipulative. From my understanding, it is pretty aggressive since these investors will go into a company and quite literally try to manipulate management decisions or even like try to change the management structure. But they're also normally there to help the company. So 
they might see things that the company has overlooked and they do usually try to improve things, at least financially. So he must have seen something that he could influence in Herbalife. Yeah, definitely. This is one of the many hats that Ackman wears. And you could say that he's kind of like a a risk taker when it does come to business. For example, in May of 2012, Ackman made a $1 million bet that Herbalife's stock would crash to zero. And he makes this bet because he considers Herbalife to be the largest fraud in terms of scale and numbers of countries involved. I don't really think he's wrong. So basically, what he's doing is shorting the stock of the company. And Ackman explains this really well in like layman's terms. <laughs> so this is how he explains it. You borrow some rare coins from a friend. You sell them to someone else for $1,000. Then you wait for the value of those coins to drop and you buy them back for $500. You return them to your friend. Meanwhile, you've made a bunch of money. And then you can distribute some of that money to your coin investors for letting you borrow their coins. So you're taking a huge risk and assuming that the stock will go down because if it goes up, you're screwed since you'll be forced to buy back at more than what you originally sold for. Does that make sense? It, yes, but I've honestly never heard of that before. That's so wild to me. So Ackman is basically using other people's Herbalife shares and selling them to other investors with the hopes that the value of the company plummets, and then he can buy those shares back for less and have profited. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you seen the movie Big, The Big Short? Yes, I have. It's such a good movie. Mm-hmm, it is. And it is similar in that that story, they short or bet against the housing market. Mm-hmm. Although I found it like so difficult to kind of keep up in that movie, having no background in this stuff whatsoever. I'm more so just like, watched all the pretty actors. Yeah, Mark <laughs> Ruffalo. So it felt like a like a very new concept to me while I was digging into this research a bit more too. But it's similar in what they did. Okay, so Ackman, he borrows people's shares worth $1 billion, and then he sold them to others at market price, which was said to have been about $35 a share at the time. So he was toying with over 28 million shares in Herbalife. This meant that Ackman would make money, potentially millions or billions of dollars, if the Herbalife stock crashed. So he wanted Herbalife to fail once he was in the game. I feel like that doesn't really make sense to a lot of people. Like, Like you're investing money into a company and now you want them to fail, but it's just, it's kind of like a twisted way of investing money since it's not his money and he's kind of bopping shares around. But one of the best ways to win a bet against a company is if they're doing something illegal Hmm. because then you'll have regulatory bodies within the government trying to take them down as well. And then there's one other like pretty good way to influence stock and that is if you influence the public. Mm-hmm. So in order to do this, you do need to have like public influence, but that's something that Ackman already had. So right away, he begins speaking very publicly about Herbalife, the legalities of what they were doing or what he thought they were doing. And people like really, really love to interview him on their news broadcasts or, and whatnot, since he always seemed to deliver something like very scandalous or exciting. At this point, he starts to get the government on his side as well as the public. So people are listening to him and they're believing what he says. Then in December of 2012, Ackman straight up accuses Herbalife of running a pyramid scheme. And for a while, 
the stock actually starts to decrease. At one point, they went down 63%, which would have earned Ackman about $600 million had he cashed out then. Oh my gosh. I honestly can't tell if this guy is amazing. Like, is he a hero or is he a villain? Because he's obviously doing this kind of to get rich himself, but he's also trying to take down a company that he thinks is fraudulent. Oh, yeah, I know. I would say he's neither. (laughs) Maybe leaning more towards being a good guy with some selfish undertones. Okay, Okay. And you'll see what I mean. He seems to be doing like to be investing in stuff for others, but Mm -hmm. it gets to become like a little bit selfish on his behalf. Right. Okay. So this whole thing gets like super messy since it is so public. People accuse Ackman of stock manipulation since he makes it seem like this is a takedown based on values and morals when really he has a huge Mm -hmm. financial interest in the collapse of this company. Then he says he'll donate all of his earnings from this deal. But like, donate to who? And yeah, <laughs> people also like don't really believe him. It just kind of like becomes this disaster. Like nobody really knows who to believe. In 2013, a few weeks after Ackman's big accusation, saying that Herbalife is a pyramid scheme, uh, a former business partner of his reemerged into his life. And this guy's name is Carl Icahn. And he really is an icon in the investment world. He's worth about $25 billion and he owns shares in a lot of the biggest companies in the world, like McDonald's. Mm. So the other day, he actually made a statement about his disappointment in McDonald's and their current animal welfare practices. And it's all over the news. I actually saw an article about that too. Just a headline. Oh, did you really? Yeah, just a headline. I didn't read it, but (laughs) can confirm. It's sad. The animal welfare? Yeah. I'm not going to get into it here because I find it extremely difficult to talk about, but Mm. something to be aware of if you're not already. For sure. All this to say, Carl Icahn has influence. And I'm going to keep saying Carl's full name since Ackman and Icahn sound way too similar. (laughs) But as I mentioned, he and Ackman had worked together previously. They had made an investment together about 10 years prior to this, but some stuff went down and Ackman actually sued Carl Icahn for $10 million. Hmm. So there's some tension between these two. And you might be wondering what this all has to do with Herbalife. So knowing that Ackman was trying to short Herbalife, Carl Icahn basically screws him over and makes a huge investment into the company. And with Icahn's investment, the stock went up. And I believe the documentary said it went up to like an all-time high where Ackman lost over $400 million. So he went from being <laughs> in the positives over like $600 million to down $400 million. And this is what's called a short squeeze. So this is when you try to like basically sewer a person who's trying to short a company. It's all very volatile. <laughs> and then like in the background of all of this, Herbalife is just coasting. All because of this feud between billionaires. (laughs) And now Herbalife is actually like probably benefiting from this. Like now Icon's investing money. This is so interesting because it's like this is what happens when billionaires fight. Like they've got too much money. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, there's tons of these small Herbalife distributors just trying to make their $300 in income back. Yeah. This is just like another reason why being 
a billionaire is just like a moral failing. Yeah, totally. on society. There's no point. Like take take this money away from these men and put it somewhere useful. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so then Ackman has to make a decision as to whether he'll like pull out of this business venture before he does potentially lose everything or if he wants to stick it out. And he decides to stick it out. It seems like it's less so for the money at this point, but more so for his integrity and to demonstrate that his accusations against Herbalife weren't empty. But in doing so, he wasn't really thinking about his partners whose money he was toying with. Um, And that's kind of where like the selfish part comes in. He starts to press regulators to do an investigation into the company, comparing Herbalife to the early days of the tobacco industry and that their success depended on avoiding regulation. One major issue for Ackman was that he didn't really have like the voices of the victims on his side. And he really needed that to kind of push or connect with regulators. Hmm. Enter the good people of the class action lawsuit. Woohoo! Ackman invested about 130000 towards a victim recruiting campaign where he paid Hispanic groups to come forward. He contacted Julie Contreras and many others in- involved in this lawsuit. And they were already kind of like speaking very publicly about this case, but Ackman, he really helped give them a platform to kind of communicate to a larger audience. So it was good. This seemed to have worked according to plan as the Federal Trade Commission or FTC opened an inquiry and the FBI helped with the investigation. Wow. <laughs> but apparently into both Herbalife and Ackman oh. <laughs> because he was now being investigated for... Um, potential stock manipulation using false claims. <laughs> okay, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's all drama. So, okay, is what he was doing, the activist investor, illegal? Or is it only illegal if it's based on false claims and it's like defamation? Yeah, so uh, there's a bit of a difference between being an activist investor and mm-hmm. trying to short a company. Okay. From my understanding, at least, you can become an activist investor without trying to like scam the company. Like when you're an activist investor, you're really trying to benefit the company financially and get them moving. But that was one of his many hats that Ackman wore. So he was an activist investor, but then Mm -hmm. he also did these like shorting bets. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I don't like, I think that this is like a legal thing to do. It's just very risky. Okay. And really it's only multi-billionaires or people who have multi-billionaire clients who -hmm. can do it. For sure. Okay. Okay. So Herbalife responds to this investigation by doing things like reducing their shipping costs, simplifying returns, and shutting down any deceptive distributors. But ultimately, their stock ends up dropping. They were just trying to save face. In the meantime, the Attorney General of California receives a letter from prosecutors in San Diego pleading with her to help with an investigation into Herbalife. And who was the attorney general at that time? Well, it was none other than current vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. Oh, my goodness. And I hate to say it, but it gets a little bit scandalous for her. Okay, I'm excited. Three weeks after that letter was sent to Harris, she received a large donation to her U.S. Senate campaign from Washington lobbyist Heather Podesta. Podesta's ex-husband, Tony Podesta, owned a firm called the Podesta Group, who had worked for Herbalife over the last two years. Then Heather Podesta's own firm 
was also hired by Herbalife shortly after this incident. Hmm. And you can probably guess what happened next. Nothing. Harris did not launch an investigation into Herbalife and gave no reason for her decision. Oh, I'm so disappointed. Yes. And again, these are just the facts as they were relayed to me through articles. Who really knows what happened? But there wasn't much else out there on this specific topic. And a lot of people did criticize her for this decision, including those who were a part of the class action lawsuit. Some of those people were quoted in in the news articles and whatnot. Her whole platform during the presidential campaign was as an advocate to those with less power and financial means. So it just kind of seemed like a little bit, I don't know, not aligned. Yeah. Yet when she was given this like opportunity to help with those who needed it, specifically Hispanic communities, it seemed like she may have been bribed. Again, total speculation. I have no idea what actually happened, but it just sounds so fishy. It definitely sounds fishy. (laughs) She had the perfect opportunity to help a massive group of people. What year was this? Sorry, I'm just trying to scroll back. Like, when did that happen? This was, I believe it was like 2015 or 2016. It was when all of this stuff was going down. Okay. I just feel like her support would have really influenced this case. And it's just, it seems so unfortunate because it just seems to be what she stands for. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And then all of a sudden she isn't standing up for 1.55 million victims. Yeah. 1.55 million. Like we keep coming back to that number and it's astounding. That's an astounding Mm -hmm. amount of people. Yeah, it is astounding. But yeah, luckily this isn't the end for for that 1.5 million. Oh, good. So in July of 2016. So it was before July 2016. Okay. So in July of 2016, the FTC announced that Herbalife is required to pay $200 million to be divvied up between the distributor victims, as well as to fundamentally restructure its business model. But Mm. Herbalife was not deemed a pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. Even though the FTC claimed that the compensation structure was the problem and they were forced to restructure their business fundamentally. Yeah. So even like despite all of that, they weren't labeled a pyramid scheme, even though they're like, this and this and this is wrong. It seems ridiculous. But like, (laughs) because if you're a pyramid scheme, you're only making money on new recruits. If you're an MLM, you could be making money off the sale of product or recruiting other people. So technically, I guess it wasn't a pyramid scheme, but like no one was really making money off of the products, not significant money. Yeah. I wonder, though, if their investigation really went into revenue Mm -hmm. or, like, net income. Because when they did that research, it wasn't the FTC. It was, um, I can't even remember who it was. But in the documentary, they did that research on, like, foot traffic and products purchased within the nutrition clubs. Mm -hmm. Even with people purchasing the products, they were out like at least $12,000 every year. So really they weren't actually making money on the products, but products were being purchased. It's just that they weren't making up the expenses in that business. So what did make up the expenses was a pyramid scheme. Yeah, for sure. And if, I mean, (laughs) if the FTC is instructing you to fundamentally restructure your business, (laughs) I mean, come on. (laughs) That's that's a pretty tall order. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, the FTC 
has received backlash from this decision. Since only 350,000 people involved in the case received any money at all, and those who spent less than $1,000 on Herbalife inventory received nothing. Um, and then even those who spent more only received between $100 and $500 of settlement money. So it was hardly a win, and it definitely didn't make up for their suffering or all of their advocacy efforts. But get this. If a distributor had brought on other distributors to be a part of Herbalife as they're in, like, in their downline, they themselves did not qualify for compensation and received nothing, even oh. though they were also victimized, maybe even more so than the others, in that they spent more money in the company and brought on family members and friends. Right. And this is just like, it's so problematic because it's putting the blame on the individual who tried to achieve success within the company by following the Herbalife business standards and practices, and then makes it seem like they were the ones who were like being deceptive rather than the ones being deceived by this company. Absolutely. It almost makes it seem like they're guilty too, so they don't get any sort of compensation, even if they brought in just one or two people, maybe when they were new to the company. Yeah. And then regretted yeah. it ever since. <laughs> yeah. And they're giving Herbalife a tiny slap on the wrist. Was it $200 million? And they are making billions and billions mm -hmm. of dollars every year. And then they're putting the blame on these distributors who were following what they were told to do to have success wow. in Herbalife. That is not the satisfying justice I was hoping for. No, not justice at all. So this was in 2016. But then by 2017, Bill Ackman had lost about a billion dollars in this deal. Herbalife had somehow climbed out of this hole unscathed. And I mentioned this earlier, but as I said, they in 2020, they made over $5.5 in net revenue. And then last year, they made over $5.8 So they're still mm -hmm. growing. After this five-year fight with the company, Ackman finally pulled out of the deal and out of short selling in general. The company's stock never did hit zero, which was what Ackman was betting on. And I think he took this loss pretty hard since it was so public. But don't feel too bad for him because he is still a multi-billionaire <laughs> and he is still working, just not in shorting businesses. So last week, he, he actually backed out of a billion-dollar activist investor deal that he had with Netflix. Hmm. And he also, I think, chalked a pretty big loss there too. But he's still fine. Like he's still bopping around with billion-dollar companies and he's fine. <laughs> He'll recover. <laughs> <laughs> He'll recover. So after Ackman retired his Herbalife feud, Carl Icahn sold his stake in the company too, which is hilarious. <laughs> He's like, my arch nemesis is out. I'm out too. Yeah. And it's estimated that Icahn made over $1 billion during his time there. Oh my God. And fun fact, or like not so fun fact, in 2016, Carl Icahn was named the special advisor on regulatory reform to ex-president Donald, Donald J. Trump. Can't even Donald. <laughs> Donald. <laughs> oh my gosh. But it's it's just interesting how this story is just so tied to many politics and politicians. Oh yeah. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. And money, money, money. Money, money, money. So to sum it up, the wealthy businessmen left this deal, one with a billion dollars and the other with some mild public humiliation and some <laughs> pissed off clients. 
But the true victims remain victimized and some even re-victimized by their own government. The Herbalife conglomerate continues to sell their health products, health in quotation marks, using a similar but modified MLM structure despite all of this scandal. Hmm. So much scandal that there's even more that I could not cover in this series. <laughs> like the liver toxicity claims where some Herbalife users developed liver disease consistent with drug-induced hepatitis while using the products. Oh my gosh. The top millionaire distributor who brought Herbalife into Mexico, who used now-banned lead generation tactics, and who tragically committed suicide in 2013. The fact that Herbalife had to pay a $123 million settlement in 2020 to settle bribery charges in China, where they tried to bribe Chinese officials to obtain licenses so that they could sell their products. Oh my God. Or the other lawsuits, <laughs> including a $140 million class action against 44 of the top Herbalife distributors for recruiting using false claims about life changing financial success. Oh, oh my, gosh. <laughs> my God. That's four more episodes. Just right there in that bulleted list. I know. And that's <laughs> honestly, that's not even everything. <laughs> after after I like made my notes here, I sent Sarah a voice note just talking about how there was a, like an FBI intel person at Herbalife. Oh Do you my remember? God. Yeah. Oh, of course you remember. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just like so much drama that did occur and continues to occur at this company. And I honestly... Never thought that I would hear of a food or nutrition company more scandalous than Subway, but Herbalife takes the cake. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and Subway's not, Subway's just like the subject of scandal, not even like yeah. fundamentally scandalous. Herbalife is like, it's fundamentally scandalous. The FTC basically said that. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, I feel like Subway sometimes is the victim in those yeah, stories sure. that we hear. Yeah. But I'd never heard of a company with more scandal no. that kind of surrounds them. But this one really, really does it. But yeah, that just about wraps it up. It's kind of like an unsatisfying ending. It but is. I don't think this is the last time we're going to hear about Herbalife. Mm -hmm. And I really do hope that these victims get justice, like the justice that they they deserve. For sure. And I, I think you're right. I don't think this is the last we'll hear of Herbalife. And you're also like, that is an unsatisfying ending. I want like a wonderful justice story. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess we'll need another class action lawsuit. Yeah. No, I know. I feel like I probably could have framed the uh, the class action like conclusion a little bit more positively, but it's not positive. Mm -mm. They deserved more. They did not get what they deserve. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's just the worst. I I think so lowly of Herbalife now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I thought pretty lowly of Herbalife before this even, before we recorded this two-part episode. And now I'm just like, how? How do they keep going? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the positive? Like, I don't see a single positive. There is no positive. I think for some people... Uh, we, and we talked about this a bit in the first episode. Yeah. For some people who have the network and have the financial means to enter mm -hmm. like a business dealing like this, they may see benefits long term if they can maintain their downlines and whatnot. But ultimately for the average person, this is, is like it's not a good business model 
mm-hmm. the products, I'm sure some of them are fine, but there've also been instances where some of them very much are not fine. Yeah, for sure. And they're just taking advantage of people. Yeah. Wonderful job with our first ever two-part episode. <laughs> Round of <Thank> applause. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that was so good. And our next episode is actually going to be our season two finale. And it's a really good one. A one-parter. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> one-parter. <laughs> a one-parter, maybe a long episode. We'll see. I won't give too much away, but it's kind of about two wild boys that get lost in the woods. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I think you just gave it away. No, I didn't because <laughs> there's a plot twist. <laughs> Amazing. I cannot wait going to be great. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsavory. You can find all the references and materials used to put this episode together in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through our Patreon link in our bio. To keep up to date with the podcast, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Unsavory Podcast. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at unsavorypod at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.